There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hello and welcome to Curious Canadian History. I'm your host... David Boris. In 1979, a conference was held in Toronto, which became a pivotal event for both Toronto and Canada's lesbian community. While so much attention at the time was focused around the emerging visibility of Canada's gay community, it was heavily gendered focusing almost exclusively on gay men, much less so for gay women. Thus, this 1979 conference was a key moment in helping bring visibility to Canada's lesbian community while also acting as a rally point for many within the community across the nation. This is Season 7, Episode 16, the 1979 Binational Lesbian Conference. To take us through this important topic, today we are talking with Rebecca Sheffield. Rebecca is an archivist, author, and educator based in Hamilton, Ontario. Rebecca's professional career began in publishing, meandered into archives and record-keeping, and has since settled into public administration. She was the first executive director and archives manager of the Archives, formerly the Canadian Lesbian and Gay Archives, an organization that is the inspiration for much of her scholarly work. She trained as an archivist at the University of Toronto and earned a PhD at U of T's Mark S. Bonham Center for Sexual Diversity Studies. Rebecca has served as a senior policy advisor for the Archives of Ontario and is now advising on digital and data policy with Ontario Digital Service. She is the author of Documenting Rebellions, a study of four lesbian and gay archives in queer times by Litwin in 2020. And she was also part of the award-winning editorial team that produced Any Other Way, How Toronto Got Queer, which came out in 2017. Her work has been published in Archivaria, American Archivist, Radical History Review, Library Trends, Papers, and the International Journal of Information, Diversity, and Inclusion. I began by asking Rebecca, what was the relationship between the Canadian state 
and Canada's gay and lesbian community in the 1970s? That's a really interesting question because by the late 1970s, a number of really critical, important changes at the state level had happened. So some of your listeners may be familiar with Bill C-150. It was introduced in 1967 by then Minister of Justice Pierre Elliott Trudeau, and it proposed considerable changes to the, the Criminal Code of Canada. So the bill, which would become law June 27, 1969, decriminalized certain sexual practices between consenting adults age 21 and over. And this legal reform brought Canada kind of one step away from a time when homosexuality was a crime punishable by death. Um, when Trudeau proposed the bill, men were still being routinely sent to prison, some indefinitely, for the crime of being homosexual. There is a famous quotation from Trudeau who defended this bill by stating that there's no place in the state, uh, pardon me, there is no place for the state in the bedrooms of the nation. So that's a pretty yeah. famous quotation. But, you know, historian Tom Hooper has done some really important research on the aftermath of Bill C-150 and found that Trudeau, while opposed to criminalization in public, was not entirely comfortable with lesbian and gay people. So police harassment continued and it just looks slightly different. Uh, it escalated in some ways as well. So city police in Montreal, Toronto, Edmonton, and elsewhere, they continue to raid gay establishments, mainly bathhouses and gay bars. And they made arrests using a set of, of Canadian laws that were actually meant to control sex work. So body houses um, and found-ins, uh, if you were found to be in a body house, you could be arrested. And so there's an interesting relationship there between the um, continued harassment and persecution of particularly gay men and sex work laws. It's interesting. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, so, and so there was this sort of, there's, there's this formal move to decriminalize homosexuality, but at the same time, there is this continued harassment of the community itself. That's right. So what's really interesting is that 1979 then sits at a rather interesting tail end of a progressive period in Canadian history. So you have uh, Trudeau as the architect of the 1969 omnibus bill that overhauls this Canada's criminal code. Um, but he's also serving out the last few months of, uh, as prime minister before handing over the reins to a conservative government under Joe Clark. Right. In Ontario, Premier Bill Davis and his big blue machine, they pushed forward with rapid expansion of community colleges, universities, and of course, highways. We also founded um, things like television stations. Um, TV Ontario uh, is, is something that was founded in this time. Uh, Davis also introduced rent control to curb the skyrocketing costs of living in the province's larger cities. And here in Toronto, where I'm based, uh, Mayor John Sewell, known as Mayor Blue Jeans, he was fighting against the uh, expropriation and development of working class and poor neighborhoods. So Sewell had established himself as an ally for the city's growing gay population and a defender of gay rights. And he was vocal critic of the Toronto police by advocating for greater accountability to the public. Um, 
1979, though, greater police accountability was also a preoccupation of the local gay liberation movement. Right? So let me back up a bit. Sure. You had gay groups that started to form on campuses in larger cities in Canada in the late 1960s. Gay liberation movement really took shape in about 1970-71, when a number of activists and their supporters assembled on Parliament Hill in Ottawa to deliver a manifesto that we, we call uh, We Demand. And this was really to call for further actions to change laws and policies with respect to gay and lesbian populations. So that already in 1971, there was an understanding that the criminal code amendments of 1969 had not gone far enough. So there was a large uh, scale public demonstration for gay and lesbian rights and equality. And uh, a, a fellow named Charlie Hill declared, uh, quote, today marks a turning point in our history. No longer are we going to petition others to give us our rights. We're here to demand them as equal citizens on our own terms. Mm. So there's a real turning point here. Um, and, and from then on, the, the really the emerging gay liberation movement really came into formation. Uh, so later that year, a bookseller and gay activist named Gerald Moldenhauer founded The Body Politic, which was a news magazine that was among the first to document the actions and activities of gay liberation. And then in the summer of 1972, a group called Toronto Gay Action sponsored the first gay pride festivities um, to mark a year since We Demand. Wow. Uh, the next year, 1973, a small group of women held the first lesbian conference in Canada at the downtown YWCA. Um, and then there were a number of protests as well in response to um, planned visits by Anita Bryant, who was a, uh, a spokesperson for, um, uh, you're gonna have to forgive me on this one. She, she really was known as the uh, Florida orange juice spokeswoman but she had been paid, taken up a paid role as a, a spokesperson for an anti-homosexual um, religious organization in the States. And they had been successful in overturning some uh, fairly progressive laws in Florida, and they were attempting to do the same across the States and then later into Canada. They were really trying to like reverse some of the progressive work that had happened. Um, one more thing by march 1974 ottawa police arrested 18 men for sex offenses and they published their names in the paper oh. so one of the men arrested um unfortunately took his own life that year um in shame triggering a protest at the ottawa police station and in october police in montreal raided seven gay bars as they attempted to clean up the city in preparation for the Olympic Games. Mm. So there were raids that continued for several more years in various cities, including Toronto. Um, and it was as though the police had found kind of these new ways for, uh, for them to harass gay men, despite mm -hmm. the changes to the criminal code. Mm -hmm. But to get to the meat of the story of the 1979 Binational Lesbian Conference, you have to understand that in a lot of activism that took place throughout the 70s, lesbian women were either 
left out yeah or felt disconnected from some of this this protests some of this activism um this was a time when lesbian women and gay men did not always share political goals mm. also they had very different concerns so many lesbian women had children for example and in some cases lost custody of those children because they were homosexual and in fact ex-husbands and fathers could often use homosexuality as a way to um, control the relationship that they had with their ex-wives and children and so you can see the the preoccupation with police harassment of gay bars and bathhouses didn't impact lesbian women the same way and so women were also more aligned with women's movement, International Women's Day marches, um, and some of the other activism that would be considered feminist or um, women-centered. And so the, there's a whole strain of feminism called lesbian feminism, where uh, you know, a large number of, of lesbian women participated and led activist movements. Um, they were kind of distinct and separate from what gay men were doing. You know, no matter what the opinions about homosexuality, there was still sexism that women had to deal with. So there was this double, this, this double oppression. And, and so, you know, in some ways, um, with the actions of the gay liberation movement mainly focused on issues concerning gay men, lesbians often felt that their needs took a back seat. So the 1970s was a period when lesbian identity was really coming into formation. Mm. And, and it, these conferences, the first in 1973, there was an, a, another one later. Um, and then of course the 1979, which was the first binational lesbian conference. And I'll, I can talk to you a little bit about why that's called binational in a second. Um, those were really important critical moments of bringing people together in one yeah. place at one time. Yeah. Um, and that's, that's a fantastic uh, synopsis of the, of the struggles of the, of the period. Um, so per, perhaps it's a great time to segue into who is Lute? Perhaps you could tell our listeners about Lute. Sure. So in the 1970s with women's liberation thriving in the city of Toronto, there was um, there was a political movement that really brought together working class and middle class women and feminist intellectuals. And this was kind of the first time that you saw uh, universities offering like women's studies courses or um, uh, women were becoming more um, academically uh, uh, oriented in terms of how they wanted to approach um, human rights work or understand the role of women in society. And so there was a point in time in which a number of women um, got together and decided that they really needed a space of their own. Uh, they, they needed a physical space. So if you can think about there's there's the political and the, the legal context, but there's also a social context in Toronto. So this is a time when women are starting to found coffee shops and and have these feminist coffee shops where women can actually make make a little bit of money um, run a business but also um, provide a space for women to come together and be social in a in a space that is just for them 
There's also the founding of the, the Toronto Women's Bookstore, which becomes a really critical space for um, sharing information about feminist movement, feminist theory, political action. There's also work being done around uh, women's centers, rape crisis centers, and you know, women's libbers are founding things like daycare centers. So all of these issues are coming together. But a number of women came through the International Women's Day um, work, which had been around since um, the early 70s, and said, you know, a lot of the work that we're doing here is sort of focused on the needs of, of heterosexual or straight women and their families. We need to have a space of our own. So they decided that they were going to rent a space in a house on Jarvis Street in downtown Toronto. And it was already a place that had a feminist cafe on the main floor. And they were going to rent out other rooms in the house so that they could start offering um, uh, social events, activities, have uh, cafe nights with music, um, or just hang out with each other in this space. So they founded an organization called the Lesbian Organization of Toronto, or LUT. And this became the first openly lesbian feminist group in the city. Um, and there was, you know, anywhere between like 30 and 60 women that gathered together um, on one night in 1976 and agreed that they would become an actual collective and that that someone would actually pay money and that they would rent out the space at 342 Jarvis Street. Um, so this included people like a documentary filmmaker, Lynn Fernie, um, author Eve Zaremba, all of them wanted to come together um, and just be in the safe, positive space in which lesbians could socialize, organize, and meet each other without fear of reprisal. And it was also outside of a bar, so it was a little bit of a different space. Right. And and, and how, how does Loot go about trying to mobilize? I mean, I, I can imagine as the organization collects and they get momentum and more people kind of find out about it, how do they seek to mobilize further within the community? Sure. Well, you know, they, they didn't always get it right. Um, okay. you know, it, in, in some cases, their, their allegiance to women only space um, really was a boundary that was uh, set up purposely to um, keep out trans women. Right. So they didn't always get it right. But what they did do is they ran all sorts of, of social and uh, political activities out of right. this. Space. So they had a phone line where they would offer peer counseling, telephone support. They hosted dances. They organized social and political activities. They were part of the International Women's Day activities mm -hmm. and marches that took place at, on March 8th every year. Um, they had a lending library, so they had books. Oh, yeah. I mean, this is, there's no internet, there's no email. Right. Of course. Uh, you know, there's, there's, a, there's a real need to actually create a kind of informational landscape about uh, lesbianism, about same-sex desire, about your rights as a queer person. Um, they had a newsletter that they published um, routinely that they would send out to members that hmm. provided information about their activities, but then also included, you know, other kinds of, of uh, uh, storytelling, poetry, you name it, it was in there. They did potluck socials, they promoted concerts. Um, there was performances by lesbian musicians such as Farron, 
Alex Dobkin. And then there's this famous Toronto band named Mama Kia Two. Um, Lorraine Sagato was at one point the lead singer of Mama Kia Two, who went on to do Parachute Club uh, and win win Juno awards. So yeah. yeah, it was a it was a pretty lively center uh, at the time. Um, that, that's that's phenomenal. Uh, how so? Okay, so then how does this? Because you mentioned already, so there's these conference conferences already occurring in the 70s. So this the 79 binational conference is not the first conference per se, but how does this one sort of come about? What what makes this one so kind of interesting and 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 maybe unique in its own way? Sure. Um, well, Loot was really kind of struggling to meet the needs of all of its members by the end of the 70s. So it, it had only been around for, for three or four years, but it was getting pulled in all of these different directions. And it was also really getting uh, pulled in, in ways that were, you know, some, some women who were involved were uh, working class, trade unionists, immigrant women, um, you know, that, that really had certain needs. And then there were the more middle class academics or feminist scholars who, who had other kinds of needs. Somewhere in the middle, there was a group of women who um, I would maybe describe as lesbian separatists. So hmm. they believed that lesbians would only achieve social, economic, and political parity with men if they actually withdrew participation from mainstream activism and cut ties with men altogether. Uh, now that's a uh, that's a very much an overgeneralization of what lesbian separatism is. And it certainly takes an extreme approach to achieving the goal. But many who participated in this form of organizing, they recognized that separatism was mainly about developing these strong, self-determined communities of women. And you know, the, these communities would have their own arts and culture. They would have their own businesses and services and greater equality of labor and economy. Um, but in order to achieve this, this kind of self um, determined community, women would have to learn skills uh, and knowledges that had been previously the domain of, of men. And at the same time, lesbian women needed opportunities to share ideas, work through contentious politics and disagreements, and to build personal and professional competencies. So the best way to do this was to find ways to bring lesbian women together in one room at one event and to actually talk through some of these issues and start to build that shared cultural experience. Um, and that's exactly what these conferences were meant to achieve. So that was their, their primary purpose was to bring people together. Right. Yeah. And, and by, by binational, what, what, what did that refer to? Well, that's, that's interesting. So I had been, uh, uh, I will call myself an amateur historian, a history okay. geek for a long time. I was a professional archivist for a number of years. And I did not realize that the term binational referred not to Canadian and United States, which I always thought it did. It actually refers to Francophone and Anglophone nations within Canada. And so keep in mind that throughout the 70s, while you have all of this progressive politics happening within Toronto, within Ontario, within Canada, there is also a burgeoning Quebec separatist movement mm -hmm. happening just over the border here. So there were incredible gains made in the lesbian feminist and feminist communities in Quebec by Francophone women 
who were also affiliated with Quebec separatists. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Awesome. So there is a lot of politics swirling around in the 1970s and the the women here in Ontario, they knew that they needed to find a way to bridge that gap between Anglophone and Francophone women. Um, many of them spoke French or had spent time in Montreal and they, they really wanted to recognize that there was um, there was an important and and I, I I will use the word distinct culture of francophone lesbians that needed to be involved. So that's why binational became part of the title. How interesting. So this was a focused. So it's so it's interesting that, that that's in the title. So that means that there is a very explicit conscious effort to, as you said, bridge the gap between, you know, the famous two solitudes of Canada, but in this very sort of specific community, well, maybe I, I want to ask if you could walk us through the conference a little bit about what's going on, but I'm also really interested in, was the Francophone participation what they hoped for? So it's kind of a two-part question, but uh, maybe you can sort of explore that a bit for us. Yeah, that's interesting. Um, I don't know if it turned out okay. to be what they'd hoped for, but I can tell you what, uh, what I know happened at this event. So, so let's set it up. So in sure. Toronto, there are very few places that are going to be willing to rent space to a lesbian feminist organization. Um, it had been difficult enough in the early 70s to find a space, and eventually they did at the YW. That space was no longer available. So they started looking for a different space. And one of the, the only available spaces was Heart House, which is a, on University of Toronto campus. And it was sort of a strange choice because the venue had only a few years prior in 1972, even allowed women to become full members of Heart House. Um, so it had been established um, as a, a student facility it offered social spaces they had lessons it was study rooms but it was really oriented towards male students and um so it was kind of an interesting space to to host this conference but the organizers really wanted to fill it with lesbians and they did uh, so it was in the spring of 1979 and there were about 400 women in attendance. Um, there might have been more, there might have been fewer. This, these are the numbers that I know. Um, certainly some women came for the whole conference, which was over three days, and other people would have come for some of the more social events that took place in the evenings. Yeah. So I came by bus, car, train, airplane from all over the country. Uh, when they arrived on day one, it was a Saturday. And there was an opening plenary and a day of workshops and the workshops were um, run by you know community facilitators there was one on lesbian relationships there was another one uh, on coping with booze drugs and cigarettes 
right? Wow. So there's a lot of addiction issues in the community that people really wanted to learn more about. Um, there was one on lesbians in prison. So there was still a, a large number of lesbian women who were uh, imprisoned in Canada. And so that was, that was the focus of a single workshop. There was a lot of workshops dealing with lesbian motherhood. So as I mentioned, this was a time when lesbian women routinely lost custody and had to fight the courts to access their own children. There was even a, a group at the time called the Lesbian Mothers Defense Fund that raised money to support women throughout that process. Wow. Um, there were other workshops that focused on um, minority lesbians, what we would probably call today intersectional identities. And um, there were you know, other workshops on religion, rural communities, uh, lesbian separatism. They were all offered, as far as I can tell, in simultaneous French translation. Wow. So this is, this is how the binational really comes together in practice, is that there was a concerted effort to make all of the activities accessible in both languages. Wow, that's phenomenal. That's actually quite progressive for Canada as a, at the time, period. It doesn't even happen today. So it's, it's quite interesting. Yeah. Um, and then there were these other kinds of workshops and sessions that happened continuing into the next day on Sunday, from skill sharing workshops to car maintenance, bicycle repair, how to run a coffee shop. Wow. There was self-defense workshop. Um, and women who attended were offered lunch and accommodations. So there was billeting that was available. It was, a, it was a real community of trying to get people a place to stay and transportation to local residences. Um, there was also, and, and I will say that this sometimes still today doesn't happen, there was free uh, childcare during the day. So women were encouraged to come with their children and childcare was provided on site. Wow. Um, yeah. That's well. That's that's phenomenal. It's, it's actually incredible the the wide array of of topics being discussed and the opportunities that are sort of being displayed there. Do you do you think do you, do you think that there were some key moments in this conference? Do you think there's things that stand out as sort of crucial moments that that defined it? I do. I I think what's interesting is <laughs> when I first went looking for people who were there, I interviewed or spoke with a number of women who attended. And no one could remember or had a lot of recall about those workshops or those sessions. But everybody remembered the dinner and dance. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, and some people had really clear memories of the dinner and dance and other people just remembered the feeling of being in this room. So um, on the, the Saturday night, there was um, a dinner and dance. It featured the band Mumkia 2, who I mentioned previously. Mm -hmm. Um, they would they would be kind of a house band at a lot of women's dances that happened around the time. And so they were a popular band. Most people knew them. 600 women showed up to this event. It was actually not held on campus. It was held off campus at what was called the War Amps building. Um, I'd have to look up where that is. But the War Amps building was large enough to accommodate this, this large group of women. Um, and so 600 women showed up and I heard uh, a number of different uh, recollections about this event. Um, one woman who was there, Amy Gottlieb, 
recalls that the police actually showed up oh. uh, and were, were always worried about liquor violations. Mm -hmm. So this was the excuse that's been used many times to police queer people is they wanted to make sure that there was a liquor license and they wanted to make sure that food was being served. And I believe they, they came and went though without any, any problem. Um, but the police did show up at this event. And of course, other women I spoke to remembered, um, you know, just, just the feeling of being in a room with 600 other women who presumably identified as lesbian in a time where 600 people in a room was already a, an event, yeah. but, but being in a room full of people that shared your sexual orientation or identity, um, where you felt safe enough to flirt with the person you were dancing with, sure. where you felt safe enough to um, be who you wanted to be, dress how you wanted to dress. It was a pretty revolutionary experience. So in all conferences, those social, mo mo yeah. uh, those social moments, you know, are, are so critical in, in, in helping define what the experience is like. Um, was there anything like, like it was this, the, the size of it, the organization, was there anything on this scale done before in Canada? I don't think for lesbian feminism, okay. there was anything quite this large. There had been International Women's Day events right. that would have likely attracted this many people, but that was um, not lesbian specific. Right. Um, there, there were definitely um, protests and activities like uh, early gay pride events, right. um, some of which may have, have met the 600 uh, thresholds, but no, this was a pretty significantly large event for the time. Yeah, that's, it's a really fascinating. Um, do you, in, in your interviews with, with different participants and in your own research, are there any key ideas that came, like, were there sort of like, because there's all these things happening, right, from fixing a bicycle to, to dealing with addiction issues and, and all these other, you know, incredible topics and, and such a wide array of them. Are there key ideas that they wanted, either the conference organizers wanted to touch on or just that organically emanated from the conference? So I think two major outcomes of this conference happened. One is wonderful and one is unfortunate. Okay. Um, we'll start with the unfortunate. This was a mobilizing event for loot. But it also was probably one of the last events that loot ever did. Oh, I think that the membership being overstretched and also having very different ideas about how to, to move the organization forward. Everyone pulled together to make this happen, this, this conference happen. But once the conference ended, it was really hard to keep going. So wow. Luke had actually, they had, they had raised close to $15,000 through community donations to help support this, this conference, which is a huge amount of money totally. in those days. And so it was a really successful con uh, conference in the sense that you know, it was well-funded, it was well-organized, lots of people and lots of diversity of opinions came out in this conference. 
but it probably was the the last major event of loot before before the the kind of momentum fizzled out mm. um there were other issues that loot was dealing with as well i mentioned that they they really struggled with inclusivity of trans identities right they also were lesbian separatist keep in mind this is just before a major series of bathhouse raids occurred in Toronto, leading to what we now know of as the modern lesbian and gay rights uh, movement, as well as the, the sort of evolution of contemporary corporate pride, which comes later. So this was a time, a, a point in time that, that never really continued its, its momentum after this. Um, that said, there was something really quite delightful that came out of this. And that was the loot member, Amy Gottlieb, led a, par a group of participants to draft the Lesbian Bill of Rights. Huh. And so it was the, the Monday, May 21st, it was the closing plenary. And they got together and wrote this manifesto. And it really was an attempt to awaken a kind of new energy within the lesbian feminist movement. So what it stated, and I'm going to paraphrase here, is in the past decade, many women came out, we've built communities and networks, we've taken a collective stride into the future. Let's let our militants and imagination lead us forward, always hoping that we will be respected for who we are. So, so Amy Gottlieb, puts forward this manifesto as a way to recognize the hard work that had been done previously and encourage further momentum in the lesbian feminist um, movement. And she's really optimistic about it. Hmm. So I think it was published later in a, a newsletter or a, a journal, I can't recall, um, but that manifesto really set in, in text, in tone, um, this recognition that, that this group of women had something that was shared, their identity was important, that there was something to be remembered about this event, but also that there was more work to be done yeah. and that, that they had within them the, the power to do that, to, to continue that work. And I, I, really, I really always admire uh, Amy Gottlieb for her optimism in this manifesto. So I think that's, that's maybe the lasting legacy that came out yeah. of this. Do you think um, it's so interesting that you were just saying that this is kind of taking place right before these watershed moments in the modern gay movement. So, or, uh, so but it, it's a kind of an interesting question, but does the does this conference transcend into the modern movement in any way that you see as significant? I, I, I'm, it's kind of a strange question, but perhaps you could explore that a little bit. Yeah, maybe to some extent it transcends into the modern movement. I think something happens in the 80s that really shifts the political attentions of both men and women. Um, so it starts in, in 81 with Operation Soap, which was the bathhouse raids resulted in protests of thousands of people after 300 men were pulled out of uh, bathhouses and arrested on a chilly February evening. Uh, there's a great slogan 
that was coined by one of the protesters that is no more shit uh, and fuck you 52 and 52 <laughs> was the police division 52 of Toronto. And what's interesting is that both of those slogans, which appear on t-shirts and buttons and everything around the time, uh, they were coined by a lesbian woman, Chris Birchall. And so what happens with the bathhouse raids is that all of this movement that had been happening in gay liberation that I walked through at the beginning of our conversation, it really comes to a head in, in these bathhouse raids where men say, I'm not going to take this anymore. We're done. We're going to protest. We are not going to let police do this to us anymore. And women, whether they had been uh, friends or friendly with gay men or not, also recognize this is a critical moment. This is a critical moment because our boys are in trouble. They need our help. We're, we're going to come and we're going to participate in this as well. And so you see a kind of coming together of gay liberation and lesbian feminists in this moment in the early 80s. And those protests really become uh, the, the, the forerunner to like modern gay pride parades. Right. right. So the work that was done at these conferences where women took uh, center stage where women concentrated on themselves, where where lesbian women learned skills, learned how to do political activism, uh, learned from one another. All of that work contributed to this kind of more um, co-ed uh, movement that happens in the 80s. Then something else happens in the 80s, which is the AIDS crisis. And that further solidifies these relationships between um, lesbian women and gay men, uh, because in a lot of cases, gay men are sick or they are caring for loved ones who are sick and women are involved as both caregivers, but also fierce advocates for better care for people dying with AIDS. Uh, so it's, it's an interesting kind of moment in time where, where that the seventies, where the, the activism was sort of separate needed to happen before it could come back together. And so I do, I do think that it's difficult to think about these moments as transcending, but they, they needed to happen when they happened. Yeah. Yeah. That, that's a, and I, that's a great point. And I think that's a great place to wrap up too. Rebecca. I, sure. I thank you so much for coming in and talking to me about this. This is such a, an interesting topic and a topic that that more people need to know about so thank you for taking the time to talk with me today thank you for having me it's been great i want to thank you all for listening today don't forget you can find me on twitter at doc boris that's at d-o-c-b-o-r-y-s you can find us on facebook you can find us on instagram you can find us on patreon and you can find us on all podcast listening devices and please do not hesitate to write and leave a comment. We love to hear from you. I'm David Boris. Stay curious, friends.